more than 90 countries in 24 languages to a world audience in excess of 2.8 million people. The World Ahead by The Economist has brought together experts from around the world to reveal what lies ahead. In the midst of this era that feels unpredictable and unprecedented, their insights are essential reading for individuals, professionals, and policymakers alike. The Council has a long-standing relationship with The Economist, where we are, have been able to bring expert-level analysis of ex existential issues straight to you. We are thrilled to bring this program back to you today for what looks to be an especially interesting year following so much uncertainty and change. So what truly lies ahead in 2023? Hello and welcome this afternoon. My name is Liz Brailsford, the President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program today features Tom Standage, Deputy Editor, Editor of The Economist, in co uh, conversation with Council President Emeritus Jim Falk. If you haven't yet, I highly recommend that you subs subscribe to The Economist and keep up to date with The World Ahead. I'd like to thank uh, a few people, a few organizations and partners. Firstly, Global Santa Fe for partnering with us on this webinar. We appreciate the ability to be together virtually and also to our sister councils around the nation, including the International Relations Council in Kansas City, the Phoenix Committee on Foreign Relations, the World Affairs Council of Jacksonville, Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, World Affairs Councils of Connecticut and Albuquerque and Greater Houston, and also the World Affairs Council of Greater Hampton Roads. We love our sister councils. I also want to thank the council's institutional partners, NEC Corporation of America, and also Lockheed Martin. We couldn't do what we do without them. I want to introduce our moderator for this uh, afternoon's program. As I mentioned, it's Jim Falk. He's president emeritus of our council. He was with us for 20 years before retiring in March of 2021, and uh, now he resides in Santa Fe. He's a member on the, of the board of Global Santa Fe, and he also is uh, a co-host on the McQuiston program that airs weekly on KERA. And with that, I will welcome Jim and Tom. Thanks, going, thanks again for joining us, and I'll give Great. it over to you. Thank you so much, Liz, and it's such fun to do this. I think, and you're, and you're kind to let me. I've, I think I've done this program probably about six or seven years, of course, with you, Tom, and then uh, formerly with uh, uh, Daniel Franklin. I guess we are the warm-up act for the most important event of the day. I'd like to ask, you know, first, who's going to win the match? And I'm glad it's not Great Britain. Uh, you may not know, Tom, I'm the honorary consul of, of Morocco. So really interesting to see what's going to happen in that match. Before I introduce you, what's your thoughts? Who's going to win? Uh, I'm, I'm funny enough, whenever I do this presentation, I've been asked a lot about who I think is going to work, win the World Cup. So I've been I've been prefacing it by saying I'm not going to make predictions about the World Cup. And I'm also not providing investment advice because a lot of people say, what shall I do with my money next year? Uh, everything looks terrible. Um, so uh, so I'm going to I'm going to stick to that and not make any predictions. But I will predict that a lot of people in this country will be having you know been knocked out by France will, of course, be rooting for Morocco. Bravo, bravo. Well, let me just quickly introduce you as uh, Liz did a wonderful introduction about The Economist. And of course, you've been with, as you say, the newspaper since 1998. And uh, in addition to being the editor of The World Ahead, you're the deputy editor of The, of the, of the Economist. You know, one thing that I've always found so interesting about economist writers that I've gotten to know over the years 
is that very few might have degrees in journalism. It seems that you grab some of the most esoteric topics that you can find and then train them to write like an economist journalist. You are a computer scientist by training, receiving your degrees at Oxford, and you've written a number of books. And one of my favorites is The World in Six Glasses. Uh, and you also have written a brief history of mod uh, motion from the wheel to the car and what comes next. But something that is not in your resume, on the formal resume at The Economist, and uh, I went to Wikipedia, which is not always the best source, but in this case, I found out it was, you are a drummer with a band called Sepastopol. And take Sebastopol. a minute. Sebastopol, it's called. <laughs> take a minute and tell us how you find the time to roll that in with your full-time work at The Economist. Uh, well, uh, to be fair, Sebastopol, I think, has made two albums in the last 10 years. So uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, taking up a vast amount of my time. Um, but uh, funnily enough, it's actually uh, the, the same band I've been in since I was at school. And I play in a few different bands. We also have a jazz band at The Economist where I play drums, and that band is called The Invisible Hands, and uh, we are playing at the um, Christmas party next week. And on vocals, we have Samaya Keynes, who is the great-grandniece of John Maynard Keynes. Um, and unsurprisingly, she is an economics correspondent at The Economist, because of course she is. Uh, but she's also a very good singer, so she's um, she's singing with us next week. So, um, uh, so yes, I do like to play drums in a variety of circumstances. I believe this is called Bringing Your Whole Self to Work. Well, that's great. And I think um, uh, Kirsten or someone over at the World Affairs Council of Dallas is going to pop up the, the link so that people can enjoy hearing it later today, I hope. So tell us about how the how long have you, has The Economist been publishing what was, I think, the world in the year, and then you changed the title to The World Ahead. Yes, that's right. I think this is the 37th year we've been doing it. And um, it used to be called, yes, the world in 2023, say. The problem with that is that you don't have a, a, a comprehensible name for the generic product. So we would call it the world in. Um, but if you say that to someone who doesn't know what you're talking about without the year on the end, it doesn't make sense. And the other thing was that I want to expand this and I have been expanding this so that it's more than just the annual publication that comes out in November with our predictions for the following year. I want this to be a year round franchise about thinking about the future. So we have a podcast um, which is running. Uh, it runs for eight episodes in December and January, but it has previously been a monthly podcast. We want to do events as well. Um, and, you know, there are other things we can do under the brand having changed it to the world ahead uh, we do quite a lot of film series under that under that um uh, that brand as well so it's a much more flexible brand and one of the world ahead products the flagship world ahead product is the annual um which this year is called the world ahead 2023 obviously so it's a more flexible name and that sort of positions us better for the future which of course is what the um, publication itself is meant to help to do for readers and as readers know, typically you do not see the byline of the Economist writers, but you do in the world ahead. Yeah, in the world ahead, we, you do see the byline. So there are two places you get bylines at the Economist. One is uh, in the world ahead. The other is if you write a special report, which is one of those big um, sort of you know ten pages in the middle on a, on a single topic. Then you get a, a byline for that. Um, and then of course you know on things like newsletters and and podcasts, we we do appear uh, as ourselves, as it were. Um, so the 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 policy of anonymity, I I don't think it's going away but it's sort of frayed around the edges as a result of digital media where i think people expect to have a a, a sort of a better idea of uh, of who the people they're dealing with are if particularly if they're following them on social platforms uh, and so on so it's been a sort of um slight opening of our, our policy of anonymity but um but that doesn't mean it's going away i think the the core weekly is always going to be anonymous 
And I can't imagine what the timeline is. I mean, you even got the midterm elections. When do you start working on the publication? So we start working on this in May and we start, I, I usually have a big tea party, funnily enough. Obviously, I haven't been able to do that for the last couple of years, but um, I hope to do it again uh, next year. And uh, essentially, we have lots of tea and coffee and sticky buns. And there's a massive kind of caffeine and sugar rush. And I get my colleagues uh, who sort of drop in typically. It, it, tea goes on for like two or three hours and people tend to drop in for an hour or so at some point. Um, and we just say, you know, what are you looking at for next year? What are the themes we should be watching both on your patch and in other people's patches? Who are the interesting people to watch? And we just had a sort of massive brain dump from our um, our editorial staff about what they think is interesting and what's coming up. Um, and then from that, we start to sort of pick out some ideas and then we go back and forth for the next few months. We've pretty much nailed down the first draft of you know what we're going to try and write by July. And then there's quite a lot of course correction. Um, in July, August, September, I get quite a lot of emails from people saying, well, I was going to write about this, but actually now I think I should write about that. Or this has actually already happened, so we should we should change it. Um, then the copy comes in in, um, in September and October, and I spend the whole of October assembling it all and then we go to press uh, beginning of November and we traditionally used to go to press right after the US election date um, mm. because it used to be that you got the results of you know elections quite quickly but more recently we've seen you know um, essentially scepticism towards postal voting and uh, more election results being challenged and this sort of thing so you you don't get the results right away in the way that you know we did for a while there so we've been having to close later and later so that we can actually take in the results um, so uh, yes I, I would like what I would what I'd really like to happen is for the the concerns that some Americans have about postal voting and um, and early voting to evaporate so that so that the widespread use of those things uh, can come back because uh, you look at you know much big countries are able to have elections and produce the results on the same day America for some reason doesn't need to be capable of doing it but it'd be great if America could do that again. Okay, but we that's haven't had personally. any prime ministers this year, so give us. Yes, a that's true. That's true, and, uh, and and sadly, you know, all of our new prime ministers, none of them were elected by um, by the the people of Britain. They were elected by the members of the Conservative Party. This quite small electorate of of you know uh, eighty thousand or so, uh, eighty thousand or so, mostly quite old people. Um, uh, so it is a bit bizarre, and I'm not holding that up as a as a paragon of um, of democracy when it comes to choosing a leadership. Hey, before we get started with your presentation. It, it must be such an honor, and I wonder how easy it is for you to get some of the leaders around the world, great thinkers, to uh, contribute columns. Um, yeah, it is. It's great. I mean, some some of them come back straight away and say, "Yes, I'd love to write for you," which is which is always good. Some of them we have to chase, um, and uh, you know, some some uh, are. Uh, happier to to you know do this sort of thing th than others but uh, yes we always try to get an interesting mix of people from from politics business science and the arts um sometimes they come to us actually brian eno um suggested he would like to write for us and we said yes we'd love to have you we were looking for a um for somebody from the arts from music the world of music something like that um and uh, so we we said yes absolutely um so yes it's it's uh, it's always a, an eclectic mix of people and uh, it is once again this year and I want to remind everyone that Tom's going to give a presentation now. And so um, go ahead and put your questions in the Q&A box because we really want to get in as many of your questions as we possibly can. Take it away, Tom. OK, so I'm going to push this button here and you should be able to see my slides. Here we go. Um, so this is my top 10. Uh, as we've just been discussing, the uh, the world ahead, and you hear some covers of previous editions, so you can you can see, uh, and you see the most recent one on the right there. Um, the world ahead is put together with the contributions, the predictions of both the journalist at the Economist, 
also our colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is the B2B arm of The Economist, and it provides forecasts on 80 countries and 15 industries. Then we have our special guests. So uh, this year we have, for example, Eric Adams, Mayor of New York City. We have Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy. We have Brian Eno. We have Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados. So all sorts of interesting people uh, contributing their views on the coming year as well. And then uh, the, the final piece of the puzzle is the forecasts from the super forecaster team at Good Judgment. And these are the super forecasters who won the US government's um, geopolitical forecasting contest about a decade ago. And they won by a huge margin and then they held the contest again and they won by a huge margin again, at which point they stopped holding the competition and just said, look, these guys are the, you know, the people who, who do this the best. Let's use their method. So we're very lucky that they make a handful of predictions for us every year. So I'm going to be sprinkling some of their predictions in as well, because um, they, they provide things, you know, with these very these very precise uh, probability estimates is the way they like to do things. Um, anyway, so I boil all of these things down and I look for common themes and strands running through all of these predictions from all of these people. And I then produce my letter from the editor, uh, which appears on a single page with my top 10 trends. And essentially what I'm doing now is the live version of this letter. So let's jump right in. And you won't be surprised that number one is Ukraine and what happens in Ukraine. And that's because what happens in Ukraine is now the main driver of what happens in the rest of the world. Obviously, for a while there, it was the pandemic. For a couple of years, what was happening with the pandemic was the most important single factor. And now it's the war in Ukraine. And that's because the war in Ukraine affects energy prices. It affects food prices around the world. That in turn feeds into inflation. That in turn feeds into what central banks do about interest rates. And that then affects the broader economy around the world and um, determines you know, whether we get recessions or not and how deep they are if we do. So a lot hinges on what happens on the ground in Ukraine. Even if you're on the other side of the world, you are affected by it. So what do we think will happen? Well, we think there are likely to be further Ukrainian advances during 2023 of the kind we've seen in, in recent months. But we think an, a, a resolution and an end to the conflict is pretty unlikely. And why is that? Well, essentially, Vladimir Putin cannot win. He cannot get what he originally wanted, which is to take over the whole of Ukraine. So the best he can do now is to delay losing and to string things out for as long as possible in the hope that something changes to his advantage. And there are a few things that could happen. Um, the first is he's hoping that by bombing the infrastructure in Ukraine, the electricity, water and heating infrastructure, he can break the will of the Ukrainian people and force them to uh, basically cut a deal with them where he gets to keep a chunk of their country. We think that's pretty unlikely to happen. Uh, and in fact, the more the Ukrainian infrastructure is attacked, the more resolute the Ukrainian people seem to become. Another thing that could happen that Vladimir Putin would like to happen and is, is hoping for and is trying to make happen is that Europe could lose its unity and its, uh, its, its resolve in supporting Ukraine. We're about to have uh, quite a cold winter, it would, it would appear. Europe's gas storage is full, um, but it's not going to be full for next winter. And we're probably going to have a difficult time, if not during the winter, then during next year, because supporting consumers and supporting businesses in the face of high energy prices, which many governments are doing in Europe, is extremely expensive. And some countries can afford to do that more easily than others. So Germany can afford it, Italy can't. So we might see cracks in European unity um, in support for Ukraine. And again, that's something that Vladimir Putin would absolutely love. We think that one person to keep an eye on there is Georgia Maloney, the new prime minister of Italy. She has been very outspoken in her support for Ukraine, but she's in a right-wing coalition with two um, apologists for Vladimir Putin. So you can imagine 
her saying, look, we can't afford to uh, support our, our companies and our consumers in Italy in the way that the Germans can. This is unfair. We're having to take all the pain. Can't we put some pressure on Zelensky to, to cut a deal? Um, but of course, what, um, what Putin would really like is Donald Trump to come back in 2024. The perfect phone call that got Donald Trump impeached for the first time was with Zelensky. And so we know uh, there's history here and we know if Trump had to pick um, a side, we know which side he would pick. So um, that, I think, is what Putin would, would really like. If he can string this conflict out for another couple of years, um, then things might turn in his favour because America is the single largest backer of Ukraine, both financially and with weapons. And uh, if that support was withdrawn, then that could make a dramatic difference to, to what happens on the ground. So we think there's unlikely to be a decisive outcome in 2023. The one thing that might change that is if Putin himself um, falls from power or falls out of a window, something that seems to happen quite often in Russia at the moment. But that's pretty unlikely. We asked the super forecasters what they thought, and they put it um, at 9% chance of 1 in 11. Um, so as a result, we think that the, uh, the sort of situation that we have now, the grinding stalemate, um, I mean, if you look at uh, images from Ukraine, it's looking more and more like a World War I battlefield in many respects. Uh, we think that's probably going to persist uh, throughout next year. So what does that mean for the economy? That means that uh, we're going to continue to have uh, the sort of situation we have now. We've got very high inflation, although it looks like it's peaked both in the US and the UK now. Um, the pandemic began that wave of inflation, but the war really magnified it. And we've seen central banks around the world raising rates faster than they have in decades. And they're all doing it at the same time as well. So it's not like you've got you know, a downturn in one country, um, but other parts of the world, um, you know, doing much better. Much of the rich world is is having a really very coordinated downturn. So we're going to see recessions um, across the board in, in the in the rich world. We think a mild one in the US next year, a deeper one in Europe, and a very long one in Britain, which has probably already begun actually. Um, but the pain will go much further than that. Even in countries that don't have high inflation, um, they are having to deal with higher rates if they've got currencies pegged to the dollar. And a stronger dollar also means that if your debts and your trade are denominated in dollars, your food imports or your debt repayments, then a stronger dollar obviously raises your cost. So this is painful um, all around the world. I mean, another example would be uh, Pakistan and India, for example, uh, rely quite heavily on liquefied natural gas imports. A lot of that gas is firstly very much more expensive and a lot of it's now going to Europe instead so that um, Europe doesn't have to use Russian gas. And that means that uh, there's less energy available and the energy that is available is more expensive in those countries. Um, but there is a silver lining of sorts relating to the energy, and that's that the war has accelerated the switch to renewable energy. In the short term, many countries are using more coal right now, but that's a stopgap measure while they bring more renewables on stream. And we're seeing a wall of money going into renewables. Now, obviously, in the US, there's the, um, uh, the IRA, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a climate change act. But essentially, it provides a lot of subsidies for clean energy. Um, and in Europe, many countries have set new records for their use of wind and solar this year and are raising their targets for how much of their electricity they intend to get from renewable sources by 2030. So Fatih Birol of the International Energy Agency has called all of this a turning point in the history of energy that will accelerate the clean energy transition. Now, we've seen these claims before about previous crises, the global financial crisis and the pandemic. In both cases, the recovery plans that were put in place had sort of green strings attached to them. And there was a lot of talk about how that crisis was going to be a turning point in the fight against climate change, which didn't really happen. But this time it's really happening. Um, there's been a record increase in energy investment 
this year to $2.4 trillion, up 8%. Most of that is on clean energy. Nearly all of the growth is on clean energy. And um, this really is a, a, a turning point. I think, I think it really is the case this time. European nations just don't want to be dependent on Russian gas anymore. And essentially, concerns about energy security are what is driving this. And also cost. It's cheaper to get wind and solar going than to import LNG. And so even if you don't believe in climate change, and you should believe in climate change, it is real. But even if you don't, you have very good reasons to invest in renewable energy um, so that you don't have to buy hydrocarbons from autocrats and so that you don't have to pay so much for energy until you control your own energy supply in the future. And it's not just wind and solar. Nuclear is benefiting from this too. Old uh, existing nuclear power stations are being kept on for longer. And uh, essentially, new ones are being planned. Britain, we've just we were thinking about cancelling a new one. We decided to go ahead with it, even though we've got very little money in the piggy bank. Uh, and that was the right choice, I think. And then the other winner here is hydrogen, and hydrogen um, and green hydrogen in particular, uh, a way of decarbonising various things like steel making, cement making. It's absolutely useless uh, for road transport. Don't don't bother with hydrogen for that. Uh, but it can also be used for things like shipping. Uh, so there's suddenly a lot more interest in in hydrogen and um, and using that as part of the energy mix in the future. Um, and in fact, what's really interesting is that there's so much money now going into clean energy technologies that we're seeing bickering uh, between the US and Europe over whether those subsidies are fair. And um, and I think this is a high class problem to have. I think when you're arguing about, you know, whether your industrial policy is fair or not, um, because so much money is going into renewable energy, I think that's a, a, you know, a sign that things are going in the right direction. OK, another theme for next year is going to be China and whether China has peaked. Now, in one sense, China will peak next year, and that's population. So if you look at this chart, the, um, the blob on the left is China's population, which will peak next year and then start declining. And just as it peaks, it's overtaken by India's population, which continues to grow. This overtaking will happen sometime in the middle of April, and the population of both nations at that point will be 1.43 billion people each. And China's population has been aging for a long time, and it will then be aging and shrinking. India's population will continue to grow and is a much younger workforce um, and a much younger population more generally. So there's a demographic dividend coming to India. India will be growing faster next year as well. It will be the fastest growing large economy. It will grow at more than 5%, whereas China will be growing at less than 5%. And so um, this this uh, shrinking of China's uh, workforce and its population is a long term drag on growth. But there have been many short term drags on growth in the last two years. We've seen the crackdown on tech tech firms and the business community more widely as the um, as Xi Jinping tries to sort of steer them into a direction that he thinks is more politically suitable. So things like cracking down on video games, trying to get technology firms to focus less on shopping and food delivery and more on robotics and, and uh, semiconductors, things like that. There's also been a crisis in the property sector, which peaked in 2021 um, and is in a real mess and is about a fifth of the economy. But of course, the biggest factor that we've all been aware of that has been holding back the Chinese economy economy has been the zero COVID policy, uh, where you have these very draconian lockdowns of entire cities, uh, when you get even a handful of cases, and that disrupts supply chains, it stops people going to work, uh, it stops factories from from opening. And that has proved to be extremely unpopular. And it's also not working anymore. The Omicron variant um, is so spreadable that these very, very dramatic lockdowns uh, don't really work against it. And this is all adding up, not just hampering economic activity. It's extremely expensive to maintain the zero COVID policy. By one estimate, China 
is spending one and a half percent of GDP, which adds up to a quarter of a trillion dollars this year just on COVID testing. So you can see why there's been public unrest and um, protests against this, and also why um, China is starting to loosen the uh, the very strict controls. Now that could be a very bumpy ride. We could get a, a big exit wave of a lot of cases, tens of millions of of cases. Um, and uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths because China is not a well-vaccinated country. Uh, the zero COVID policy worked very well for the first couple of years, but the government didn't take advantage of the time that this bought them to vaccinate its elderly population. And where it has vaccinated the elderly population, it's done it using homegrown uh, vaccines, which aren't as effective as the, as the Western ones. Um, so if you put all of this together, we think that you can make a case that China's era of rapid catch-up growth may have ended um, it's not going to grow fast, faster than 4% next year or the year after. Um, and in fact, it may never grow faster than, than sorry, it's not going to grow faster than 5% next year or 2024. And it may never do so again. It may now be in the classic middle income trap. And some people are starting to say that, and here's another chart, um, that China's economy may now never overtake America's in size. Now, this is something that you know we've talked about as a sort of inevitability that sooner or later um, China would overtake America as the world's largest economy. That may never happen. And, um, uh, you know, some people re will remember the predictions that were made about Japan in this regard in the 1980s. It was also assumed that it would overtake America and it never did. So, um, so you know, might the same now be happening again with China? We'll see. I think the big question here, so there's hence lots of talk about, I think, peak China next year. Um, a big question here is going to be whether a slower growing, weaker China will be a more dangerous China. Um, and might that make it more likely to take on Taiwan? And we'll come back to that in a minute. Meanwhile, let's move on to America. Uh, and obviously, we now have divided government coming up in January, now that the Republicans have taken the House. But we have these very, very thin majorities um, for the Republicans in the House and the Democrats in the Senate. And as we've seen with Joe Manchin, uh, you know, when you have um, one or two people who can essentially determine whether something gets through or not. That's a recipe for gridlock and it's a recipe for factional infighting. And, uh, you know, and it's very, very difficult to get things through. Um, we can expect to see conflict both between and within uh, the two main parties next year as they gear up for 2024. Republicans obviously are going to launch lots of investigations into Hunter Biden and his laptop. Will they manage to equal the number of investigations into Benghazi? We'll see. But there's bound to be a, a lot of that sort of thing. Um, and meanwhile, the cultural divides on guns, abortion, the teaching of race and history in schools and so on show no signs of, uh, you know, of not of, of, of getting any better. They're just going to continue to deepen. Um, but aside from the sort of business as usual of the conflict between the parties, we're also going to see um, a conflict and argument within the party. So, so Donald Trump has announced that he's running for 2024, and that sets the scene for a, a bruising primary contest um, sometime starting sometime next year. Um, and at the same time, Joe Biden is under pressure, despite having done better than expected in the midterms, to say that he won't run again. He's you know quietly being told, "Come on, you know you could get a lot more done in your last two years if you uh, if you decided that you were going to step aside. You'd be the elder statesman. You might find it easier to peel off some moderate Republicans and get a few bills." through um, if you're not the you know the, the guy for the other team who's running for the presidency in 2024 um, and where I think we might see uh, some bipartisan action would be on the on the, the two 
things that Republicans and Democrats agree on, which are bashing big tech and bashing China. And, um, and I think those are the sorts of areas where we, we, we might see bipartisan bills. And of course, the overlap of those two things is bashing TikTok. Uh, TikTok is trying to strike a deal with the Biden administration now. It looks like it's not going to get through this year. Um, and I think that's going to turn into a, a bun fight next year. But that is actually something where I think, you know, um, a privacy bill that controls the way that uh, big tech handles data, particularly for, for young people and for children. Um, I can see that being the sort of thing that you might be able to pass. And I can see that being very bad news for TikTok in particular. OK, on to flashpoints to watch. Um, so we were taken by surprise by the uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, we went to press in November of 2021, right at the beginning of November 2021. And at the time, it looked as though the buildup in Ukraine was just another attempt by Russia to intimidate Ukraine rather than invade it. And that Russia had done this many times before, uh, including earlier um, in 2021. And so we thought it was another case of that. But of course, it turned out in, in December, it became apparent that the troops were all going to stay there for the winter, which is a very unusual thing to do if you're not actually then going to use them. Um, so this time around, what are the what are the flashpoints that we should be watching for 2023? Once bitten, twice shy. We want to suggest as many as possible. So that if there is a conflict, then uh, we've uh, we've we've suggested it to you in advance. Taiwan is the obvious one. Could it be the Ukraine of Asia? And um, you can sort of argue this one both ways. On the one hand, China might say, well. Um, Ukraine means that America and Europe are distracted, so now might be a good time to move on Taiwan. On the other hand, Ukraine shows that size isn't everything, and when a big power attacks a smaller power next door, things don't always go according to plan. So we think there's quite a small chance of um, a move on Taiwan. Uh, and in fact, we asked the super forecasters on this one as well. They reckon a one in six chance of any kind of um, exchange of fire across the, the Taiwan Strait. Um, and that would include you know, small skirmishes between Coast Guard boats and, and, and so forth. Instead, we think it's much more likely that China will use this, this coming year and, uh, and the next couple of years to test the mettle of America and its allies in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. So we think it's much more likely that it might do something like you know, land some troops on, a, on one of the small islands between Taiwan and China, or one of the islands, say, one of the Senkaku Islands, which are claimed by both China and Japan. And just see you know how how america responds and how its allies respond um, in asia pacific and that's not the only flashpoint to watch another flashpoint that we highlight in this year's edition is the disputed border between india and china in the himalayas this was a quiet border for quite a long time. And then there was a brawl in 2020 in which 24 soldiers died. And I call it a brawl because the soldiers on this border don't carry weapons. They don't carry um, firearms. They carry clubs. Uh, and this is a, a, a deliberate attempt to try and avoid uh, escalation and, and avoid um, skirmishes breaking out. Uh, but the, essentially, they they have this fight and uh, uh, where they beat each other to death. Um, and we, we've been worried that this could blow up again. Both sides are very keen to show that they take territorial in integrity very seriously. Both sides are building infrastructure next to this border, and that's a recipe for escalation. And funnily enough, it turns out that there was such a skirmish last week, um, last Friday, in which um, three or four soldiers died. So uh, that does that border is worth keeping an eye on. Um, and that, you know, clearly any dispute between India and China could be very serious. Um, and then closer to home for me in Europe, um, I think another possibility to keep an eye on is that Turkey might try to steal an island from Greece. There are quite a few Greek islands that are right next to Turkey, in fact, visible from its coastline, to which Turkey lays claim. 
and Turkey's President Erdogan faces re-election next year, his most uh, challenging re-election since, uh, since he took over. And um, so we think one way he might try to burnish his nationalist credentials, particularly because next year is the centenary of the founding of the Turkish Republic, might be to steal one of these islands. Um, and we think that might sort of boost him in the polls. The worrying thing is that Greece might be up for a fight because Greece's prime minister also faces re-election next year and is also doing badly in the polls. Um, and so he might uh, jump at the opportunity to, uh, to get into a fight. And this would be a crisis for Europe. And it would also be a crisis for NATO because both countries are members. And speaking of NATO, one way of looking at the um, the sort of the way the wind is blowing in geopolitics is to look at alliances. Who's up and who's down? Which clubs do people want to join and which ones aren't looking so healthy? In 2019, Emmanuel Macron told us that NATO was brain dead and that the EU was on the edge of a precipice. And both of those alliances seem to have sort of lost their way. Now, Donald Trump talked about pulling out of NATO um, and the EU obviously had lost Britain and had internal fights going on with Poland and Hungary and so on. And one of the consequences of the um, of the war in Ukraine has been to give NATO a new sense of power and, uh, and, and cohesion, co cohesion um, and new, new sense of unity and remind everybody why it's there. And of course, Finland and Sweden now want to join it as well and hope to next year. And the EU has also been reminded why it's there too. Um, and more broadly, I think, um, people have, have been reminded by this whole situation of the need to defend democracy. Democracy doesn't defend itself. You actually have to do something. So I think there was a tendency, and I think Britain was the worst offender on this uh, front, to assume that to sort of take the benefits of you know, unification of, of Europe through the EU and just sort of say, well, you know, um, to bank that and to say peace just happens on its own. We don't need to be a part of this club anymore. It doesn't just happen on its own. Um, and, uh, and so I think we've all been reminded of that. Meanwhile, America's alliances in Asia are becoming much more important. So the Quad, which is the US, India, Japan and Australia, and AUKUS, which is a, a relatively new grouping that brings together the US, the UK and Australia. And these groupings are both intended to counter China's rise and they have much higher profile. Um, and then I think another interesting uh, grouping to watch is the Abraham Accords, uh, this group of Arab powers that have essentially um, normalized relations with Israel. And uh, the big question is, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a sort of semi-detached member of this group. Will Saudi Arabia join next year? And this is this is sort of a consequence of the, of, of the US pivoting away from the Middle East towards Asia. Um, and so the Middle East sort of the, the shifting sands of, uh, of, of Middle East alliances, it's both an economic block. Saudi Arabia is pouring money into Israeli startups, for example, but it's also mainly a, an anti-Iran block. And Iran, clearly a country to watch next year. We don't think there's a middle ground between revolution and, um, and uh, a brutal crackdown. So we think it's going to be uh, really, really brutal either way. Um, but uh, in terms of alliances, that anti-Iran alliance um, is, is gaining prominence. Meanwhile, the CSTO, which is the Russian alliance with ex-Soviet countries, is in a bit of a poor way. At its most recent meeting, Armenia walked out and refused to sign the declaration because uh, the other members had not come to its aid in Armenia's fight with Azerbaijan. And that's also an interesting um, thing to keep an eye on, because um, essentially in Russia's backyard, with Russia distracted in Ukraine, um, we're starting to see uh, fires um, uh, lighting there as well. Um, but judging by the um, health of alliances, I think, you know, the West looks more unified, um, but it also looks more detached from the rest of the world. Remember that a majority of people in the world live in countries that either abstained or supported Russia in UN votes on Ukraine. 
Um, and my favorite of these uh, various alliances that we, we've been looking at and keeping an eye on for next year is called I2U2, not a rock band, although I am keen on rock bands, um, but a food security and clean energy forum that brings together the unusual, unusual quartet of Israel, India, the UAE, and the US. And I think that's a reminder that food security and clean energy are universal concerns. Um, and they, you know, this this is a group of countries sort of sprinkled around geographically. Um, but uh, but these are the sorts of issues that really do transcend politics. Okay, on to travel and revenge tourism. Revenge tourism is where travelers get their revenge on the virus by taking the holidays they were denied in 2020 and 2021. And there's been a lot of it about. International tourist numbers were up 60% this year. They'll be up another 30% next year. And as a result of that, spending will get back to its 2019 level on international tourism. The actual number of trips will still be a bit lower, be 1.6 billion instead of about 1.8 billion. But the spending will be the same because of inflation. It costs more to go on holiday. Business travel, however, remains weak because um, companies are looking for a way to cut costs and they've also realized that video conferencing as we found in the pandemic is very very good and so you really do have to make a, a strong case if you want to get on a plane and, and do a face-to-face -face meeting and we saw this after the um after 9 11 and after the global financial crisis that tourism bounced back but uh but business travel never regained its former level and i think we'll see the same thing again so for tourists though the beach lounges and uh, the beaches and the sun lounges are filling up again and, and this is a case where revenge, you might say, is best served hot. What about the metaverse? Will the idea of playing and working in virtual worlds catch on beyond video games? This is something that people you know, like playing Fortnite. They're in the metaverse already, as it were. Will more people want to do this sort of thing? And will people who are not gamers want to go and you know have meetings, things like that? I think we'll get some really interesting clues on this in 2023. The big news will be Apple's first headset. We saw with smartphones, with tablet computers, with smartwatches, that when Apple enters the market, it really changes the game. Tim Cook likes to say, we don't have to be first as long as we're best. So it'll be interesting to see what Apple's headset could do. And it will initially be quite expensive. It will be for developers to build uh, experiences, build content, so that a cheaper headset, when that follows in a year or two uh, for consumers, there'll actually be some content to go on it. It will be interesting to see what Apple calls this market. Will it use the word metaverse? I think it's more likely to use a term like mixed reality or extended reality, because I think the term metaverse, although it's been around for 30 years, and although it's not um, particularly associated, uh, it's not unique to Facebook, it has been rather contaminated, I think, by the fact that Facebook has renamed itself to Meta. And that has given a lot of people the impression that the metaverse is a proprietary product being pushed by Facebook on hapless consumers who have fallen out of love with its social network. And they're like, oh, this is the replacement for that, and I don't want to have it. Um, and that's not true. There are lots of other companies that are pushing the metaverse as well. Uh, Microsoft's very into it, NVIDIA, Epic Games, and so forth. Um, so I think this renaming has been an own goal. I think it's confused matters. Imagine if Google renamed itself to the cloud. Think of the um, of the confusion that would follow. And I think that's uh, that's quite similar to what's happened here. And then another thing to think about uh, technically, which I think will be um, possibly more important than the metaverse next year, or quite a lot more important, is the opportunity to replace passwords with pass keys. And pass keys are digital keys protected by biometrics that cannot be guessed, forgotten, or stolen. So they live in the cloud or they live on your phone. Um, your phone talks to your computer and uh, all your other devices. And when you try to log in something, uh, you prove who you are by doing something like looking at your phone or unlocking your phone using a biometric such as a fingerprint or, or a face scan. Um, and uh, so you cannot uh, guess these things. You can't be, you can't be uh, 
you can't have your password stolen, you can't have the pass key stolen through a phishing attack. So this could really make a difference in cybersecurity, which I think would be great. And this is just one of the uh, new words that we think uh, you should pay attention to next year. Uh, by the way, I should say you can use this now. So some websites like um, like eBay, for example, are already set up to do this. PayPal is in the, in the US. You need the latest version of the software on everything, on your on your computer, on your or, on your phone, and on your smartwatch if you're using one. Um, but if you have the latest version of the software, uh, the operating system, then uh, then everything is flawless. This is supported by Apple, Google, and Microsoft, um, and it really is magical. Um, I use it to to log into eBay, and it's it's just brilliant. So as more people buy new devices and upgrade their software next year, this is going to become very widespread, and I've got high hopes for it. Um, but just generally, this is one of these new words that we think um, you're, you're going to need to learn next year. Uh, and if you think about it, in 2020 and 2021, we spent a lot of time new learning new words to do with vaccines and immunology. We talked about flattening the curve and spike proteins and mRNA vaccines. And then this year, in 2022, we've learned a whole load of new military terms like man pads and high Mars and counter battery artillery and this sort of thing. Um, and so next year, we think there's going to be more military terminology. There's going to be more environmental terminology as we see intensifying extreme weather. Um, so, for example, Deadpool, people are worrying about Deadpool uh, situations in uh, some of America's big hydropower systems. And then, um, of course, we're always going to see new words from the world of technology because technology never stops. So cryptocurrencies are out, but post-quantum cryptography is in. And if you don't know what that is, you should look it up because um, it's, uh, it's about using quantum computers to essentially break all of the cryptography on the Internet. And in order to prevent that from happening, we need to upgrade our cryptographic software um, before those quantum computers actually start working. If we wait until they start working, it will be too late. So we need to start now. Um, another one is productivity paranoia. And this is the mismatch between workers and bosses. 87% of workers, according to a survey, think they're just as productive or more productive when they work remotely. Only 12% of bosses agree. So the result is paranoia. Uh, the bosses worry that the workers are shirking and the workers worry that the bosses think they're shirking. And uh, this is a recipe for mistrust. It's also a recipe for productivity theater, which is where you do sort of performative work that looks like you're working uh, to reassure your boss, but is may maybe not actually terribly productive or useful. Um, anyway, we have 23 of these terms of art that we think you'll need to know in the coming year at economist.com slash worldahead23, where you can find all of this other coverage as well. Finally, in retrospect, the, um, the pandemic marks the end of a period of relative stability in geopolitics and economics. We had low interest rates, we had low inflation, and we didn't have conflict between great powers. And, to, and today we see a much more unstable world. We've got the unpredictability of geopolitics. We've got the return of great power conflict albeit through the proxy of Ukraine. We have the aftershocks of the pandemic with this exit wave coming in China, which could disrupt supply chains in, in China and affect inflation all around the world. We've got um, inflation and economic upheaval, the return of stagflation from the 1970s. But in addition to all of that, we've got extreme weather events. And of course, we have rapid social and technological change. So unpredictability is now the new normal, and there is no getting away from it. So we hope that reading the world ahead 2023 will help you face this new reality with confidence. And I wish you the best of luck in navigating the ups and downs of 2023. Thanks for listening. And now let's go to Q&A. <laughs> I'm not sure if the glass is half full or half empty hearing that. A bit, but... of, bit of both. I mean, I, 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 had the, um, I had the silver lining of the... Um, 
of the energy transition. And I think there are two other silver linings you can pull out. Um, one is that uh, this greater unity uh, among the, the Western powers, I think that's a good sign. Um, and, uh, you know, people were worried about NATO there for a while. Um, I hope Donald Trump doesn't come back and try and blow it all up again. But, uh, but you know, I, I think the, the fact that sort of the Western powers have been given a new sense of purpose and unity is, is a very good thing. Um, and also, you know, the, the importance of, of defending democracy is it, it, we've been reminded of that. Um, and then the other silver lining is is connected to China. It's not connected to the war in Ukraine. Um, but it's the fact that, um, I mean, you know, when China has a bad time, that is bad for the world. It slows down um, economic growth for the world um, and, and so forth. And obviously it's not it's not great for China, but it does rather, um, you know, undermine the idea of the Chinese model as an alternative to Western democratic capitalism. So this idea that, you know, some countries were saying we're going to follow a Chinese model and they use that as, a, as an excuse for repression. And they sort of say, yes, but you trade human rights and you get faster economic growth in return. And that just, you know, isn't the case. If you look at what's happening in China, it's growing more slowly than India now. Um, and it's going to be growing more slowly going forward. And also people are increasingly not happy with that deal. We saw these unprecedented protests, um, the, you know, the most dramatic uh, protests uh, since Xi Jinping took over. Um, and so that does suggest that chi the Chinese people are not really happy with the deal anymore. Another part of the deal was the state looks after you. And obviously, you know, Xi Jinping has made much in the past two years of how the zero COVID policy meant that there was a much lower death rate in China than the rest of the world. That's true, but that's no longer true. The, um, the idea that that policy was keeping China safe from the virus, um, you know, that's that's not working anymore. So that's why it's so difficult for China to get out of the zero COVID policy, because it has to say, you know, that thing we've been telling you is absolutely deadly for the last two years. Well, actually, it's fine and it's just a cold and you don't have to worry about it. And that's a bit of a you know whiplash inducing um, uh, change. But overall, I think it does rather damage the credibility of of the Chinese model as a as a viable alternative to uh, democracy uh, and capitalism uh, as a, a you know Western liberal de democratic capitalism, uh, which of course is what the Economist um, stands for. So I think there is a silver lining of sorts in there for you know people fans of Francis Fukuyama are you know particularly right. pleased about this. I'm sure. Well, let me jump in and bring in some of our audience. And as you bring in your questions, would you please note your counsel? I know some of you, but it would be great to identify your counsel. Uh, let's go first to Ray Termini, who's a member of the, uh, in fact, counsel in Dallas and in Santa Fe. And he asked about Turkey. Uh, could Turkey emerge as a global power after the demise of the Treaty of Lausanne? Will it be able to increase its influence in the Middle East? Will it increase its influence in the Middle East, Ray Termini asks. I mean, Turkey is an extraordinary country. I don't think there's any country in the world that is better, um, you know, has that is better at playing both sides of every conflict. Um, I mean, it's it manages to be uh, friends with with uh, with Russia and it's bought Russian missile systems while also being a member of NATO. Um, it's I mean, it's been a useful intermediary. It has to be said in um, in the Ukraine conflict. Um, it's you know, I think it was instrumental in getting the um, uh, the the grain export deal going. And it certainly provided, you know, security um, guarantees and uh, and so forth um, around that. But um, but generally, I, I now it's talking about joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, so the the Chinese led alliance. Um, so it really does want to be a member of every club and play every side of everything. And at the moment, it's holding up the um, 
the joining by Finland and Sweden of NATO. Um, Hungary was was blocking that as well. Looks like Hungary has now um, essentially, uh, you know, resolved its differences uh, uh, over that. But uh, it's really still up to NATO. Presumably, there will be a price. We don't know what it is, and that's why I wonder whether if Erdogan. Um, you know, makes a move on a Greek island um, next year, might his price for letting Finland and Sweden into NATO be, well, you know, you've got to take my side over Greece. We really don't know. But so he's not must... been clear about what, what he wants? Yeah. Uh, no, of course not. So I mean, there, there's uh, evidently there's something that Erdogan is going to ask for. And maybe he's just, you know, it's a blank check that he'll um, he'll cash next year when the election gets a bit closer um, in the way that, you know, in whatever way he can. Um, that said, I mean, we have a, we have a piece about... Um, about Turkey in this year's edition. And what's what's notable is that even if Erdogan loses the election, anyone who takes over from him is likely to continue with the sort of playing playing both sides approach to foreign policy. Um, so we, we could see a dramatic shift in uh, domestic politics in, uh, in Turkey after the Erdogan era, if it does indeed come to an end. Well, let me ask you this. Talking about succession, Alexandra Coe says, if Putin is ousted, however he is ousted from power, who is most likely to replace him and what are the chances of someone better? And you know, yeah, well, unfortunately, exactly. Um, nearly all of the, um, well, I think actually all of the people that are talked about as um, possible replacements look worse. Um, and so, you know, that is again, that's that's very worrying. Um, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, uh, how this conflict comes to an end uh, without Putin going. But it's also hard to imagine what happens. Um, after he goes, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern that Russia, the Russian Federation will will unravel and it could there could be chaos. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a I think that's a real um, I think that's a real concern. And obviously the uh, the the leader of the opposition, Navalny, is in jail. Uh, there's no chance of it being him. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, all the alternatives are worse. And that's really what's so scary about this this whole situation. And, and, you know, you can see this is why people say, well, we need to give Putin an off ramp. We need to let him save face. And you go, well, how can you? He's invaded a sovereign country next door. But, you know, there are people making the argument, well, you know, he might be the least bad option compared with some of these alternatives. So it won't surprise you that we have a number of questions about crypto. And you know, I'll add on to that. What's going to happen to Elon Musk? OK, well, let's do let's talk about Elon first. Um, I think the uh, the enormous success he's had with Tesla and SpaceX are um, are not really very good guides to what's happening at Twitter. So although Musk made his money originally in internet companies, so he had a company called X uh, He had he had um, what was it called? Uh, Zip2, which was a sort of yellow pages. And then he had X.com, which got uh, merged into PayPal. And that was how he originally made his money that he then put into Tesla and SpaceX. Um, so he did start with internet companies, but he's actually made his fortune building physical things, building cars and rockets. And I think the cars and the rockets, so Tesla and SpaceX are interesting companies because they both have very clear missions. Um, Tesla wants to uh, decarbonize road transport and accelerate the transition to clean energy. And it's done that already. It's succeeded. If Tesla disappeared tomorrow, you know, it has evidently clearly changed the trajectory of the car industry already. Um, and then SpaceX wants to reduce the cost of access to space, which it has done dramatically. It's about to do it again with its new rocket Starship, which will fly early next year. Um, mm -hmm. 
And of course, really what Musk wants to do is establish um, a human base on Mars as an insurance policy against humanity being wiped out on Earth. So there's very, very dramatic missions with both of those companies. Twitter does not have a mission. And you can see Musk occasionally kind of noodling on Twitter where he's trying to stake out a mission for Twitter. He wants it to be the most you know, credible source of information on the Internet or something like that, which, is, you know, <laughs> good luck with that. Um, so the, the difficulty is you can get people to work long hours and put up with a mercurial boss if they believe in the mission and um, Twitter doesn't have a mission. The other big difference is that um, in the case of Tesla and SpaceX, the laws of physics are keeping Elon Musk um, honest. You can see if the rocket blows up or if the car crashes. Um, and in the case of Twitter, there are no laws of physics. The laws of social physics are, you know, the laws of platforms. You get, as a platform owner, you get to make what the laws are. And we see um, Elon is changing the laws and changing the rules all the time on Twitter. Um, and, you know, he says one thing and the next day he changes his mind. So um, it's a very, very different world. And the amazing things he's achieved with his other two companies, uh, you know, you can't imagine, you couldn't imagine a more... And, and Tom, I'm going to interrupt if I may. We have uh, only about eight minutes left and so many good questions and you have well, so well, let me give answers. you my okay so so basically i think um uh, on on twitter i think you yep. know that's probably not going to end well just because of those differences on crypto uh crypto blew up this year uh, the problem with crypto is that um, there isn't a use for it aside from speculation um so it's a very clever trick that you can have these digital currencies but they're pretty useless as money you can't use them to buy things you can't use them as a unit of account you can't use them as a store of value so uh, all therefore is speculation. And as speculation goes, they're worse than a casino, because in the casino, mm. you know that the odds are stacked against you. With crypto speculation, even if you win, the house may steal all your money and run away to the Bahamas. Um, so I think uh, essentially the prices were kept up by more people coming in. It was a Ponzi scheme, in effect, and people have realized that there is no there there. And unless a sort of mainstream use for the technology can be found, um, I really don't think there is. And so the, the onus is really on believers in cryptocurrencies and blockchains to come up with a use that everyday people can make it for this other than speculation, which is clearly you know, a bad thing. So we have a question from George Wincevich. Uh, he's a member of the Dallas Fort Worth Council. Based on China's growth slowing, do you see what do you see as the future for the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, they, yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative was in trouble anyway. Um, and uh, they've sort of got a bit quiet on it. I think the interesting thing to, to look at, and we have a piece on this in World Ahead, is what happens with China's digital currency. And this sort of connects to the previous question. It's not a cryptocurrency, it's a central bank digital currency. Um, and so far it's being used by about 150 million people inside China. But what, what we speculate is whether China might start to have, try and have some of its trade, particularly with its Belt and Road partners, um, settled using this new digital yuan. Um, and you know it's starting to set up the plumbing for international transactions around this currency. So everyone is watching this currency very closely anyway, because China's um, digital CBDC is the most uh, furthest advanced. Um, and it, obviously, there are wonderful things you can do with a CBDC domestically. It gives you sort of superpowers as a, as a central bank. But um, but we think that the international uses of it could, you know, reducing its reliance on the, on the dollar and on uh, international payment systems that America controls, um, we think that could be part of China's agenda as well. So, uh, so keep an eye on that, because the Belt and Road would be where you would see that happening first. And so from Greg Vucic, who is in Albuquerque, to what extent do you see a push by not great powers to change the influence away from the dominant countries in the current world order? And he's mentioning Brazil, South Africa and the rest of the global south. 
Um, yeah, so uh, medium-sized powers are in a difficult situation because increasingly, as tensions you know rise between America and China, they're being asked to pick sides, and they don't want to in many cases. Indonesia doesn't want to pick sides. India doesn't want to pick sides, and um, it, it's kind of being forced to. Um, so yes, one of the things people are talking about for next year is the BRICS and whether the BRICS will expand. Uh, the BRICS, you know, is this sort of rather informal. Oh, I mean, it's you know, it was coined as an acronym, wasn't it, by uh, by an investment banker? But um, people are talking about adding more countries to the BRICS, and in particular, adding Saudi Arabia. Mm. And that way, you'd have a even heftier counterweight to Western-led economic blocks like the G7. Um, so I think that would be a way for some of these medium-sized powers to uh, to sort of. You know, try to in increase their influence through these larger blocks with India and China in them, which are you know much bigger players. Uh, Molly Brady from Jacksonville says, "Do you track your hits and misses, your forecasts for prior years?" Yes, we do, and I have to write an article every year saying how we did, and I also score the um, the super forecasters and how they did. They got five out of eight last year. The three they got wrong were all the result of Omicron. Um, we expected a new variant, but not as soon, um, and because it arrived sooner than expected, economic growth was was less than expected, and U.S. travel didn't get back to the level we expected it to. So the, the three things they got wrong were actually all the same thing. In our case, we obviously our big miss was we didn't uh, anticipate the invasion of Ukraine, and we were also too optimistic about as a result of that we were too optimistic about inflation working its way through the system in 2022 the war means inflation will be higher for much longer uh, right. so we got those wrong but we got a lot of other things right the midterm sure elections the before elections. i turn it over to liz let me just say i'm sorry we didn't get to all your questions they were on haiti and brazil and many other countries and in the world ahead you have that terrific section at the back where you analyze how many countries and give updates uh, it's about 80 sec uh, countries in the middle and 15 uh, 15, uh, 15 industries. So, yes, there's right. um, there's some, some of these questions may be answered. So many of the questions out. are going to be answered there. Tom, always great to see you. Let me wish everybody happy holidays, happy new year, Merry Christmas. And Liz, back to you. Thanks again. Uh, this is one of the most fascinating programs that we have. It's one of our favorites. Uh, so fun. Thank you for an excellent conversation. Three things before we part. Uh, first, join your local World Affairs Council if you're not a member yet, including us here at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Also, don't forget to join us tomorrow at our member social, our open house here at the office, register on our website. And last, happy holidays to all. I uh, thank you for your time and bid you a good afternoon.